in part five of the Love, Rinse, Repeat 50th episode special in which seven guests explore Jesus' seven last words from the cross, Sean Winter joins me to talk about one sole Greek word, though in English it is two, I thirst. Please welcome Sean Winter to the podcast and welcome back those who are listening to all seven parts of the Love, Rinse, Repeat 50th episode special. Well, Sean Winter, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat's 50th episode special, The Seven Last Words from the Cross. It's great to be here. Thanks, Liam. No, it's it's wonderful to be chatting with you. So here we go. I'll read our words out for us and for everyone listening at home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfil the scripture, I am thirsty. So, Sean, what are you... What do you hear in these words? Uh, well, it's only one word in the Greek, actually. It's interesting. Mm. It's just uh, just a single verb. Um, uh, and it's one of those kind of economical phrases in, in the Gospel of John that, um, that uh, once you scratch it, kind of evokes a whole set of, uh, of questions. But look at the basic level of a human story and a plausible um, scene of um, a crucifixion scene in, in first century uh, Judea. Um, it's a cry of deep human suffering and deep human need at, at, a, at a point of intense um, personal trauma and, and, and crisis. Um, it's very difficult for us to know, I think, you know, whether someone later on remembered that Jesus had expressed thirst at the, at the cross or whether, you know, what, what was the process by which the words from the cross were conveyed into the early Christian tradition? It's almost impossible to know how that, that happened, but it's deeply plausible, right, that someone being crucified, struggling for breath, might use what energy they have left to express uh, thirst and, and the need for some small degree of human comfort at a time of enormous suffering and proximity to death. So I, I think at one level, that's really the, the, the basic of what this, basis of what this um, uh, story is doing. And it's, um, it has lots of other associations, but it's, it's a bit like the cry of dereliction, one of the other sayings, of course, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, for someone in a situation of deep human suffering and deep human need, um, uh, uh, under this uh, extreme violence being perpetrated against you. It's a, it's a cry for help. It's a cry for some small form of relief in, in the context of the crucifixion scene. Thank you for that. I think that's right. I think that I really like that way of going. I wonder if there's a bit of a tension even in the text where there's a bit of an interpretation going on that, okay, he's saying he's thirsty, which, yes, you might think at first means because he's, you know, a, a human being, uh, struggling with great torment, but it's actually to fulfil the scriptures. Yeah. Um, now, exactly what? There's no particular, you know, like the, the text itself is, is just assuming you know which one that is, I guess. Um, but do you think that's almost like a, some tension developing there in the way it's been passed from, you know, through communities of, yes, he did say that, but just remember he was very much in control, which seems a very Johannine thing. You know, like he's very much in control of what's happening here. This is the glorification. Yeah, look, so, um, I mean, we come at that several ways. First of all, this, this thing about Jesus expressing thirst at the crucifixion scene 
is a syn- it's a gospel tradition across the four canonical gospels. Mm-hmm. So John is the only one who captures it into a, a, a saying from the cross. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, I think Jesus is offered a drink twice. And the first one he denies, the second one we assume he kind of receives it. In, in the Gospel of Luke, I think it's part particularly of the kind of taunting of Jesus. You know, will he take a drink? Um, so, uh, so we've got an example of what the Gospel of John does um, with almost every tradition that John receives into his account of the life of Jesus, which is that it is embedded in layers of additional interpretation. Um, And one of the layers of interpretation that the Gospel of John works with, similarly to other Gospels, is this notion of of Scripture's fulfilment. Um, So so the, 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 the language and the imagery of thirst and the alleviation of thirst is already a metaphor and an image, a symbol that's been worked out at several points earlier in the Gospel of John. We can talk about those texts in a bit if you want. Um, so when a, when a reader gets to this point, the language of thirst, um, the reference to wine, <laughs> um, the fulfilment of Scripture, yeah. the, these are all Johannine symbolic things. Um, so that's absolutely true, I think. And then... Uh, the other interesting thing to observe is this notion of fulfilment of scripture. Um, so that the verb that John uses here is not the not the, the same verb as he uses elsewhere. So he uses um, the Greek verb um, teleo, which means to complete, and it actually appears twice in the verse. So Jesus knew that all was now finished. We get one version of that verb, and then in order to fulfill the scripture, it's the same verb that's used. So the fulfilment of scripture here means scripture is being fulfilled in the fulfilment of the work, the mission, the vocation of Jesus at his crucifixion. Yeah. Um, and of course, that culminates in the cry in verse uh, in verse thirty, um, where the same verb is used again: "It is finished," or "It is completed," or "It is accomplished." Mm. So it's exactly the same verb that's that's being used. So you're absolutely right. This expression of human need in a context of suffering relates actually to a Johannine theme that says, don't worry, Jesus is in control of all of this. This is the plan working itself out. Um, And, uh, of course, we know that um, John's account of the passion of Jesus is shot through with very strong indications that this is not the journey of a passive, weak Victim. It is the journey of um, of a victorious king in some way or another, um, and uh, and and part of that uh, narrative, part of that account, is that John does tend to remove references to human suffering um, or to passive um, uh, acceptance. Jesus is uh, very much, in uh, as Kaiserman's words, kind of God striding across the earth at this point in the story. But but in John, that is always a tension. That never obliterates the fundamentally human, um, plausible historical narrative. I'm not saying it, it's historical in its detail, but it's plausible that this is an account of genuine human suffering and a real Roman crucifixion and absolutely a concrete and real death. Yeah. Mm, thank you. I think that's helpful on that together. I'm wondering, we get it, we get kind of, you're starting to kind of um, touch on them again. We get a bit of a string of the last words really packed together here in John. So we've just had 
behold thy son, behold thy mother. So, you know, the, the beloved disciple and Jesus' mum being brought in to become a new family. And we're just about to get to it is finished. And this is kind of wedged in. I'm wondering if there's like there's some sort of progression here in the sense of, okay, Jesus kind of ties up affairs or at least has some sort of statement about a community he is forming about other people. And then he's going to have this kind of cosmic uh, grand scale thing of it is accomplished. And then here is this one wedged in, which is on, is more for him, like more about him and his moment there. Um, I wonder if that's something or if, or if I'm just, uh, you know, in, inventing uh, theories in this moment. Oh, look, I think there might be something in that. Um, and, of course, if in verse 30, I know you'll get to it, but if in verse 30 you read the language of Jesus giving up his spirit, if you read that as Jesus giving up the spirit, which is perfectly plausible, you get this um, rich uh, symbolic interaction between the new community that's been formed, the death of Jesus, which in the Gospel of John, of course, is constructed as a departure. It's a, it's a glorification, an exaltation to God, and then the gift and, be, and bequeathing of the Spirit to this new community. So I think that um, uh, you're, you're probably right that the uh, I, I'm fulfilling Scripture in this moment of need, in this articulation of thirst, probably focuses on this is the point at which there is this transition between the work of Jesus, which fulfills um, the scriptural prophecies, in this case Psalm 69 probably, um, uh, that that actually uh, generates a transition into a new dispensation or a new age, which is marked by Jesus' absence, but the Spirit's presence. Um, and... Of course, in John's Gospel, the previous, I mean, chapters 15 to 17, the farewell discourses have basically been an extended meditation on exactly that theme. Mm. We're about to get to a point in the story where I'm not going to be with you, but I'm sending another paraclete who will be with you to encourage you and to strengthen you. So I think um, it is uh, uh, a personal saying. Um, I I thirst, it's in the first person singular, um, but that's the completion of that personal mission launches this new dispensation which is community focused absolutely yeah thank you for that so you flagged this a bit earlier that obviously thirst is something that's been brought up a lot already in the gospel yeah. uh, and jesus has promised indeed that those who drink from the living waters will never be thirsty again uh yet he is thirsty uh in this moment uh do you want to talk a little about how we you know see this as kind of you know this is a, a, you know, obviously a very written gospel. Like, you know, the w- words and phrases have been chosen very deliberately and built to a moment where this is that, like, wow, I see something. Um, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little about that way thirst is running through here? And, and um, yeah, well, I think as, as, as all good symbolism, it's open to any number of different possible kind of mm. lines of interpretation through it. Uh, I, was, uh, I remember many, many years ago reading... Um, a, a book on purportedly on another subject. So there's a very there's a great little book by Stephen Moore called Poststructuralism in the New Testament, um, Derrida and Foucault at the Foot of the Cross. And <laughs> uh, in in that book, he has an exposition of the Samaritan woman story. So the point is that the I thirst. This is not the first time Jesus is thirsty in the Gospel of John. Yeah, right. Yep. At the beginning of the Samaritan woman story, he arrives saying, "Give me a drink." <laughs> Um, and Stephen Moore has this fantastic deconstructive essay on the way in which 
and the relationship with the Samaritan woman. So, so who is genuinely thirsty in this gospel is the question. And on the one hand, it initially is Jesus, but then that flips over to um, the Samaritan woman who says back to Jesus, um, give me this drink always and I will never be thirsty. You then get the material in chapter 7 about Jesus offering a drink so that none will thirst. Um, and you think that that's all sorted. Jesus isn't the thirsty one the woman is. Yeah. But then you come to this story and Jesus articulates thirst again. And Moore has this very clever then thing about the relationship between wine and water and how that then, um, uh, uh, how water changes into wine. So the water of the Samaritan story becomes wine in this story. Someone else provides the wine for Jesus to sate his thirst and water and blood come out of his side in, 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 as a bequeathal of the spirit. Um, out of his belly shall come streams of living water from chapter 7. So I'm, I'm not sure that's clear in terms of what it means, but the, the, the richness of the symbolism is absolutely evident yeah. to me. And what comes out of that for me above all is um, this notion that the thirst of Jesus uh, is articulated in such a way that it is not an exclusively Christological symbol. It's a symbol that actually evokes something of the human quest for, well, whatever the human characters of the Gospel of John are questing for, <laughs> for truth mm. in the case of the Samaritan woman, for the truth about her own circumstances and situation, for justice, um, for, for knowledge and understanding, all, all sorts of things along, along the way, for forgiveness. Um, Jesus is constructed in this gospel not simply as the one who comes along and delivers the answers, but who shares the condition of asking those questions or articulating those needs. And that happens even in this scene of great human vulnerability and, and, and suffering. Mm, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. One, one place that my mind started to go as I was thinking about this word, particularly in the current context uh, of, of the church dispersed, uh, distance, isolated, is one of the main conversations we see that, that the church has rushed to is the conversation about communion yeah. uh, and and how should this be done, can it be done online, and, and obviously it's going to very widely widely based on the ecclesial tradition and, and sacramental theology and all this kind of thing. But I was wondering if there is anything in this word for this discussion, not necessarily be the defining here's the answer word, but you know, given what you're saying about Jesus who shares in the human, the, the quest for uh, what it is that Jesus is bringing, you know, uh, Jesus who himself thirsts, Jesus, and, and, and what you were saying earlier about the, the, the interesting um, shift that's about to happen in presence and absence and, and, and the spirit coming in a non-localised body, um, that, that there is something here, I think, to, to, to speak into this situation where many of us are thirsting for this, this ritual, this sacrament, um, but perhaps there is something in leaning into these words, in living in these words of Jesus, in living in the thirst by waiting uh, that might be evoked uh, through this. Yeah, good. Um, I mean, I look, in, in, I don't know who, um, who, who will watch this, but for many people um, within mainstream Christian traditions, my position on this in relation particularly to the Gospel of John is pretty heretical. Um, 
I'm actually with Bultmann. I think I think the the, the 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 theological vision at the heart of this gospel is pretty anti-sacramental in the direct sense. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why we don't get Jesus baptized, we don't get an account of the Last Supper. Um, and uh, what functionally uh, operates in, in the gospel in a way that leaves little or no room for concern about sacraments as we would understand them um, is, is the agency and the activity and presence of the Spirit. Um, so um, the presence of the Spirit means that access to these things that we are looking for is un- unmediated. Sacraments don't deliver them to us and we don't need them in that way. That involves you with a whole load of exegesis about born of water of spirit in chapter 3 and also John 6 and all the rest of it. Um, but I, I think the point um, very clearly is, and you put your finger on it in the way that you've articulated the question, um, is that uh, we constantly have a, 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 tr- a journey to and fro from the question of physical presence of some sort and an absence that nonetheless conveys presence, spiritual presence, if you like. Um, so, you know, the, the, the flesh and blood Jesus of this story disappears from the story at this point in, in one way, is exalted to God, mm-hmm. um, but the spirit is, is given. Um, I, I don't think that resolves the question about, you know, in, in what cases do you not stop worrying about physical presence, being in the same room as each other, whether it's real bread or real wine or whether, you know, whatever else that might be. It doesn't answer those questions, but it does tell us that very early on in the Christian tradition, there was an understanding of um, the implications of Christological claims in particular, the claims about Jesus, that meant that people were saying, none of this is guaranteed. (laughs) Um, There isn't anything physical that's going to give you what you need. Mm. Um, But neither is it completely spiritual because the spiritual actually relates you back to particularly the life of Jesus of Nazareth, which is flesh, you know, word became flesh and dwelt among us. But, I mean, the interpretation of John's gospel in, in the history of the church is bound up with the exploration of all of those questions, you know, the, the battle between, you know, Gnostic interpretations in the second and third centuries and more mainstream orthodox interpretations. But John is useful for reminding us that right at the early period, there were people who struggled with those questions. Um, and on that basis, I think it gives a degree of permission for us to continue to explore them. What constitutes presence? Yeah. What, what constitutes, um, do, does physical absence <laughs> um, mean that, that presence is not existing in some other form or another? Um, what does, uh, how, how does the articulate, where do we find the res- the appropriate response to our articulation of human need or the human quest. Stephen Moore's point about the Samaritan woman in this story is, in both cases, Jesus' articulation of our quest for or need for what Jesus provides is not met by him. It's met by someone else in the story. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and therefore, the question of where we look to find presence or the reality of the spirit's presence i think then is is opened up for possibility and you know my own view is isn't it really interesting to think about how that might be well we find that 
through pixels on a screen in a digital reality rather than a, a physical face-to-face reality? Those are really interesting theological questions, it seems to me. Mm. Thank you for that, Sean. I think that's a, a, a great place to, to land this plane, uh, and particularly with the encouragement that if people want to ask theological questions and, and want to do so online, they should check out Pilgrim Theological College. They should indeed. If, if uh, This runs on for six months, and uh, if people feel that they need some good um, structured study opportunities, uh, we'll be moving um, all our semester one units are online, and if necessary, all our semester two units will go there as well. Um, yeah, please come and get in touch with us. Go to the website, pilgrim.edu.au. Yeah. Um, I'm grateful for the plug. Thank no, you. No, that's all right. And I can say that, you know, you don't even need a pandemic to study at Pilgrim Online because I did it for, for many years. So, Absolutely. Um, We've got great graduates. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us, Sean. You're welcome. Thanks. <laughs>